Welcome to Someone Else's Movie, the original podcast where an actor, writer, director, or nebulous industry figure gives a little love to a movie they didn't make. I'm Norm Wilner, senior film writer for Now Magazine, and this is the other thing I do. My guest this week is Mark Little, a comedian, actor, and writer you may recognize from Mr. D, Space Writers, Division Earth, or the brilliant short-lived Canadian sketch series Picnic Face. He voices the lead character in the very fun animated series Gary and His Demons, which is now streaming on CBC Digital in Canada and on Verve in the U.S., and he co-stars opposite Brett Gelman in Matthew Atkinson's Room for Rent, which is still playing theatrically in Winnipeg and Ottawa and newly arrived on iTunes and other digital platforms in the U.S. and Canada. Mark picked The Monster Squad, Fred Decker's gonzo 1987 horror comedy about a bunch of kids who find themselves tasked with saving their small town, and maybe the world, from Dracula, Frankenstein's monster, the Wolfman, the Mummy, and the Creature from the Black Lagoon. Co-written by Decker and his film school buddy Shane Black, it tanked at the box office, but went on to achieve cult immortality on cable and video. And rightly so. It's a big, goofy mess, but it's got a great take on the classic Universal monsters and a surprising amount of heart. On an appropriately dark and stormy night, we got to talk about it. This is someone else's movie. Oh, Monster Squad. It's, well, I chose it because uh, uh, I went to see it last week. Um, the sort of, like, pre-Halloween screening at the Royal. It was like a Sunday one o'clock thing? Yeah, it was actually my birthday. Aww. Um, and uh, so I just like sent out an open invite to friends to meet me at the Royal and watch my favorite movie, which is the other reason I chose it, because it's like my favorite childhood movie. I owned it on VHS and just watched it several times a year for years and years and years. Um, yeah, and every time I watch it, it's just as fun. Obviously specific elements have not aged as well <laughs> in the language really just in the first 20 minutes but once you can sort of push past that just like the writing is so tight and it's so much fun and it's i don't know how i don't understand how that is not the movie in addition to maybe like et that is like 80s cinema 80s like fun cinema like i don't it's I, I don't understand how that's not the thing that people are consistently pointing to when they're talking about eighties like teen, preteen cinema. Yeah, or I think it's the curse of Fred Decker in some weird way. This is this poor guy who made sort of delirious, marvelous, cheesy genre stuff like self-aware genre films. They aren't cheesy, but they embrace the cheese of mm-hmm. you know having a Wolfman and and a Gilman and all that stuff. Yeah. Uh, his previous movie was Night of the Creeps, which is this tremendously entertaining zombie comedy. Okay. Um, set at a prom, like it's or uh, high school, a university dance, I think maybe. I, yeah, because it's set at a university, but it's um, you probably remember the poster, right? Like uh, the bad, the good news is your dates are here. The bad news is they're dead. Oh yes, definitely. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. It's a great movie. I mean, I I remember I was I was eighty five or eighty six. I was seventeen, I think, and it was just like. Oh, this is what all horror movies, horror comedies should be. This was right in that little window of Fright Night and Return of the Living Dead. And he made this movie and and anybody who saw it fell in love with it, but nobody saw it. It I just see. barely got distribution. And the same thing happened for The Monster Squad. I mean, they didn't get a major studio behind it. It was TriStar before they had the power of Sony or Columbia Pictures or whatever that unholy alliance was. Gotcha. And it just sort of slid past everybody. And I that's... saw it theatrically at the time. Right. And that so that's really what it was, huh? It was just like bad distribution. It what it didn't have, there wasn't any like concerns about the tone or no. I like, mean, sort of the adult content. There was a there was a whole wave of kids in horror right around that time, or kids in sci fi mostly, maybe. Right. Uh, My science project and Back to the Future and, and right. The the because this is this does feel like there are a couple of direct nods to to E. T. and and the Spielberg suburbia thing. Totally. With mostly with the Frankenstein's monster stuff, but. Mm-hmm. It is, uh, it's pretty easy to classify, right? It's some kids and some monsters. Yeah. And they're not quite the universal monsters, which actually makes them kind of subversive in a weird way. Yeah. Because they're just basically blatantly ripping off all the universal imagery, but they're creating their own iconography out of them. Yeah, like Gilman? Yeah. Was that? <laughs> That's what they called <laughs> the, the term creature Gilman back in the day. Been, it, the was it really? Yeah, yeah. Okay, yeah. But nobody knew it outside of the industry. This oh, is the thing, yeah. Like horror nerds like me who read Famous Monsters and Fangoria kind of knew that but it was what they called them 
it's what they called the creature internally, which is weird because you'd think they just call it the creature. The creature, yeah. But yeah, three movies and the Gilman was what they called him. And then I guess <laughs> Gilman as a single word is fine. Like Wolfman is generic enough that yeah. no one can claim it. Oh man. But yeah. it is like it's. I, I watched it again the other night uh, in prep for this, and I think it had been maybe ten years since I saw it since mm-hmm. the la- since the Blu-ray came out, probably. Mm-hmm. And uh, two things struck me. One is that oh my god, Shane Black and Fred Decker have not changed at all, and they just wrote the <laughs> Predator. Like they're still doing this. Yeah, I haven't seen the Predator. But the Predator is a great deal of fun. I'm excited. The Predator is because I mean, it is it basically puts you back in an 80s mode right in a present day see I, that but that worries me because so few things do that in a way that i actually enjoy mm. like i feel like they poach the wrong things and ignore the important stuff and then you end up with like stranger things which yeah. just feels like a shell stranger things yeah it's exactly it i still don't understand why everybody got so i mean i do understand because it is simply like it's the reptile brain of recognition where it's like oh i know this thing yeah and that's enough to yeah, just I like see the it. bare bones of this aesthetic like i like the broad strokes of it I and i don't need the, the soul of it yeah i yeah. literally recognize the font i think that's part of it 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 bummed me out i watched the first season and i was like for me like the most important thing about like amblin era like that 80s amblin or like monster squad or other movies that sort of piggybacked that genre at the Mm -hmm. time was like when the trouble started the kids didn't stop having fun it was like they're having fun when you meet them they're like scamps who rip on each other and then some massive thing gets thrown in their path and they decide to take it on because the adults aren't going to do it no one will believe them and but even through that they keep bickering they keep like roasting each other they roast the monsters or whatever the thing is like you know it's et it's monster squad it's goonies it's all that stuff they just keep the they keep the patter up so that there's that like light charm to it all that sort of kid indiana jones vibe or kid Mm -hmm. star wars and then stranger things i remember like when it started and they were like playing that weird chess game and they were ripping on each other i was like here we go and then it was like as soon as the danger struck they were just terrified kids like screaming in fear and running and playing it like drama and i just thought no man this is (laughs) what happened to the spirit of this like it's not fun anymore except that one character that like cool kid who's like a bit older with the high hair right he was fun yeah (laughs) and not john ralphio the the, yeah the not john ralphio but isn't yeah steve Steve. yes (laughs) steve was a joy steve was a joy but yeah no my problem with stranger things too is is the same thing it's like it's so completely obsessed with getting the details right that it forgets to have story yeah like it's not enough to just say oh it's oh and yeah it's firestarter meets this plus there's a saint bernard running around just because we can because we know people will get that it's like yeah Yeah. okay fine but if you're making a stephen king movie or story a stephen king-esque story yeah there's a character in the show reading Firestarter or, yeah. or Cujo. I think he's reading Cujo. And right. I, just, I remember just thinking, no, you're right. not allowed to do this. If Stephen King exists in this world, people can look <laughs> at each other and go, hang on, this is weird. <laughs> it is. It's a bit too cute. It's a bit too, like, check out our references. Mm-hmm. It's, yeah, it's cloying for sure. Um, one movie that I thought got the soul of 80s movies so right a couple years ago was The Guest. Did you oh watch yeah! The, oh my god, that because it didn't it, on the on the one hand it like was not an eighties movie, but then it just was. Yeah. It had that like John like obviously it had the John Carpenter music, but then just the soul of it, the attitude like, of it. Yeah, there's a moment felt and good. This has just come up a couple of weeks ago, I think, when that movie clarifies itself. Yeah, the scene with with Lance Reddick <laughs> where it just tells you what kind of movie it is. Finally, yeah, it's a joy. I would argue when that movie decides to be a second type of movie, but I don't mm. mind that. No, because it gives you this. It gives you the backstory for every '80s slasher movie that never happened, or all like it's the it's the scene I was always waiting for for a Friday the Thirteenth movie that explains why they can't kill him. And it's like, <laughs> yeah. yeah, okay, that's amazing. Yeah, I and, mean. I think in any other movie, if like that scene was handed just handled just elegantly enough for me to be like, fine, yeah, whatever you need to say to start the second half of this, where now you're hunting this super like programmed super soldier through small town America, like sure, fine, whatever. Like I don't really buy this scene, but it's enough. 
Yeah. It's just like a little pocket of exposition to be like, can we have fun in a second type of way now? And I'm like, sure, man. Yeah. Well, it's an invitation, right? Like it's it's an telling invitation. the audience it's going to be, we know what we're doing. It's going to be okay. Come with us. Totally. And yeah, Monster Squad, where you have real stakes. I mean, people get killed and, and, and people get shot. And yes, like, a guy gets dynamited by, by Dracula. By Dracula. Which you just <laughs> know. The best character in the movie, too. Dracula dynamites him. That yeah. cop is. Terrific. <laughs> I was not prepared for how funny that cop that is, partner That was. is the Shane Black influence, I'm positive. Like, <sighs> that's the guy who... Uh, it's Lethal Weapon, right? The friend who says, like, I'm masculine, I'm in touch with my emotions. The other night I cried in bed. Were you alone? Yeah, I was alone. What do you think I was crying? It's like, that's that's that guy. That's this dialogue. <laughs> yeah. So fast, so thrown away. What did you say? Uh, he just keeps having lines like, I'm a very good police officer. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, I know that. I'm a very good police officer. You know this about me. Yeah. And in an 82-minute movie, the stuff that they keep, like those character beats, those little tiny moments, like all the, the weird jokes about how a mummy couldn't just get up and walk away, which, you know, the audience is ahead of these characters because the movie is called The Monster Squad. There's oh, yeah. going to be a mummy in it. Oh, I love how many scenes end with someone saying something and then just smash cut to the opposite (laughs) happening or the exact thing happening like i love it it's so quick and fun the way yeah the way they end that scene where he's like the point is a two thousand year old dead guy does not get up and walk away on his own and then boom cut to a mummy walking down the street and you're following that mummy for like three seconds and then the camera pans over and you've got an ambulance coming towards you and there's a werewolf in the back of the ambulance (laughs) turning into a werewolf (laughs) but the kid driving it's listening to like heavy metal so he can't hear what's going on Oh my god! What a joy! It just moves so fast. Yeah. So um, I can imagine, like when you're a kid, you've never seen. There wouldn't have been anything like this, like a movie quite like this. No, because I wasn't super into horror at the time, um, and I certainly I was like befuddled by horror comedy. Like horror comedy, just there was something tonally that didn't sit right, so I avoided it at all costs. Um, but this one worked, and I think this one worked just because it was fun. And how old were you when you first saw it? I would have been like 10, I think. Okay, so you're the perfect target age. Yeah. And then it was just like consistent rewatches from then on. Um, but I remember watching this, and then I remember watching like Army of Darkness was the other one where I was about 12 years old, and I saw that, and I was like, tonally something's going on here that I don't fully get, but it's fun enough that I'm in. Right. Yeah, yeah. we just we just covered Army of Darkness a couple of weeks ago with, with uh, Justin DeClue, and... and he had the same experience. He came across the ending of it, I think, mm. and just didn't understand it and was fascinated by the swords and the skeletons, that stuff. Right. And just like, this is this is a movie. This is a thing that I need to know more about. Yeah. And the the like I, I horror comedies when I was a kid were terrible. Like were other than Abbott and Costello meet Frankenstein, which is right. the only one that was any good. <laughs> I just watched that. It's like, that holds up. Right? Like, yeah. That somehow feels. It's just them, you know. That's what I'm saying about like, don't stop being you when the threat comes. Yeah, you got to be more you than ever. Yeah, and <laughs> keep and, that patter. Yeah, and and let the audience know that it's okay to root for the monsters too. Mm. Like, that it's kind of fun. Dracula uh, in this movie. Uh, there's there's a whole chunk of it in the in the documentary on the Blu-ray, which is amazingly detailed, but. People still talk about, apparently, Duncan Regeer's Dracula as one of the best Dracula performances. Wow. And it's because he doesn't condescend. Yeah. Other than the one big, goofy, you know, there will be no one to stop us, laugh, scream, thing. <laughs> but what a scene. Yeah. What a scene. It is... Like, the, the, who was it? I can't remember who it was. Somebody once said that Dracula... Maybe it was Gary Oldman. Um, Dracula being an immortal being, living in isolation for so long, would slowly forget how to moderate. <laughs> And everything would be huge, uh, or everything would be really, really small. Right. Um, and Oldman was like that was his. I think it was Oldman. It was either him explaining it or someone explaining the performance. Right. That is the reason he is so big when he meets Keanu Reeves yeah. with all the swooping and the moving. It's like he doesn't know what he looks like. He's been doing this for a hundred years. That might be the that might be the coolest movie I've ever seen in my life. The sh- like the the couple just here. yeah just a as a sidebar. Oh, it's gorgeous. That, it's so well shot. It's so cool. And man, all of the stuff with like the shat all the shadow stuff yeah. where it appears before he appears and after he appears and the way it moves through the walls and the way he like scuttles down the side of the building. Oh man, that movie is cool as hell. Yeah, I can't. Does it just have? It has like a mixed rep just because of Keanu Reeves, right? Well, that's part of it. Yeah, um, just because of the think, accent. Yeah, and the midsection is 
really stiff. Just the stuff before Dracula shows up again, there's a lot of just sort of marking time. Yeah. But Fair enough. And yeah. and again, if you don't But the three suitors, a lot of fun. Yeah. And if you don't <laughs> buy into um to what Oldman is doing, like apparently people think it's a terrible performance like what? Um, Yeah, no, it's Oh, it's so good. Yeah, it's ludicrously tragic. It's just so fully felt. Massive. In but in such a good way. Oh yeah. Because the because the, the way it's shot matches that. Mm-hmm. It's yeah. We're, yeah, we're reaching a point now where I think, I don't think it's intentional, I'm sure it's not intentional, but The Simpsons has poisoned a lot of entertainment by mm. being their first in, in kids' minds. Mm. Like if you, uh, Dana Gould said once that you could um, you could watch all of Citizen Kane or all of Planet of the Apes in The Simpsons now, you, they bu- you could build it out of all the references that pretty <laughs> right. much everything has been done. Right. And so now when you see, because that was one of the very first Treehouse of Horrors, was the one where Mr. Burns was Dracula, and it was the Gary Oldman Dracula. Oh, right. And so now people see that, and they see that first, because they're younger, and then when they catch up to Bram Stoker's Dracula, the little thing in the back of their head, even if they don't fully understand it, is going, this is dumb. This, yeah, this, this is, is laughable. Silly. Yeah, 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 yeah. And I think a generation has been dented. Interesting. I mean, I probably would have seen that too before. I remember like being young and seeing it and something just didn't quite sit right. Mm. And I think it is because like story-wise, it's not a perfect movie. It does get slow at certain points, like you mentioned. And even like the parts where it's like ramping up to climactic moments feel a little bit not there. It's just the aesthetic of it is so great that now when I watch it, that trumps everything. Yeah. I can just like, don't see movies made like that. I can't believe they made it that way. Like it's so nice to look at. Uh, but I wonder if, so what, I guess what I'm saying is I wonder if it's people being poisoned by it or if it's just like, they'll just get, they'll get into it eventually. Yeah. Like grow out of the Simpsons. Yeah. I mean, it is, it's, you know, it's a film of, it's about deep, tragic melancholy too. You have to be in the right frame of mind for that in a horror movie to, to understand it. I only just realized watching it that, like, uh, Dracula's, uh, it's, um, so I don't know, when I watched it, I, sorry, total sidebar, no, but sure. I was trying to figure out how shortly after The Last Temptation of Christ, Dracula, Bram Stoker's Dracula was made, because four I think years. it's, four years? Four years, 88 and 92. Because it's like, I think it's the story of The Last Temptation of Christ, where Dracula is Christ. It's like, the last shot, because he's like a soldier for God, yeah. the ultimate soldier for God, and he goes out on his crusade, and then he returns, and because his enemies have tricked his wife, his one true love, into thinking that he died, she's taken her own life, mm-hmm. and then he blames God, and like screams to the heaven and curses God or whatever, like stabs the crucifix, I can't remember what he does, right. and, uh, and then he becomes Dracula, he's like cursed to this like living death, and then he lives out this entire like life as Dracula where he, tr- and then tries to like, you know, find re anyway, blah, 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 goes to the movie as we know it. And then in the end, refines God and then dies at peace. Mm-hmm. It's kind of the same story. It's not dissimilar. I mean, those things are tied together so deeply too, that we, uh, we keep, we, we keep consciously and unconsciously revisiting those two things together because of Dracula and Dracula Christ. And Christ. Yeah, <laughs> seriously. I mean, there was, well, a, in, in what's his name's, uh, Dracula the was, Butler one. Yeah. yeah the Dracula Gerard Butler one. He was Judas, which is genius. <laughs> I mean, when it drops in the movie and it's like, you're going for it. That's so yeah. cool. That's, That's why he doesn't like silver. It's somebody who's been obsessing over some yeah. presumably Catholic screenwriter who's been obsessing about this for his whole life. I, I felt like that movie sucked ass, but <laughs> all the Judas stuff where it was like, boom, now we're back in that time. And it's shot like all those like beautiful reds and oranges, like full sunset shots yeah. always with the like silhouette of the tree and Judas hanging from the tree. And it looks like something out of Oklahoma. That... <laughs> That sequence was amazing. Yeah. And then the way he died, like, in flames hanging from a tacky, like, Vegas cross (laughs) off the side of a building. That, those parts were awesome. That is the Dracula I want. Yeah. But if you're going to go with the, you know, evening wear, brooch, wearing, amulet, carrying, slick back hair, tuxedo Dracula, Duncan Regeer. Sure. People take him seriously. People oh, yeah. value that. Oh, yeah, we're talking about monsters. <laughs> I can bring it back that time. Um, wait, what? So, and I only just recognized him when we when I just watched it last week, mm-hmm. but... He was what? on V? Uh, no, I'm not... Sorry, not him. Oh, um, the guy who played Frankenstein. Oh, Tom Noonan. Tom Noonan. Yeah, it's Tom Perry. Noonan. That's nuts. Yeah, it is. Um, apparently, they had seen him in 
Red Dragon or somebody was one of the producers. Yeah, this Manhunter. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Red, I, sorry, the book was called Red Dragon. I keep doing that. Um, the uh, the thing I didn't realize is one of the producers is Rob Cohen, who went on to direct Fast and the Furious. He made the first Fast and the Furious movie. Oh, yeah. Uh, subsequently, and he and Peter Hyams were working in some capacity as executive producers or something on. They were involved with the development of. Manhunter. They were working with Michael Mann, and they saw Noonan on that, and it's like, oh, he's tall, he could do it. Wow. And his physicality was the thing that led them to it, but it is, it's a great performance. It's amazing. It's really good. It's totally like, you know, I can understand why people might have problems with the script, or with the story, because there are certain things, certain critical things that are just like, you just gotta gloss over. <laughs> <laughs> like, like, what made Frankenstein become friends with these kids? That's never explained. No. Except we're supposed to suppose that, like, he was always a bit, he always had a bit of a good heart, yeah. I guess. This is the little girl he didn't throw in the lake. And that's I mean, right. That, just the way they set that moment up, too, which yeah. I, I remember seeing it theatrically and not knowing, because that scene hadn't been restored yet, or... The wait, which big, scene? Oh, okay. I so, haven't seen this. So scene. in the original, no, in the original Frankenstein, the James Whale film in thirty-one, oh, okay. the monster kills a little girl. Uh, oh, damn! And it, she's dressed almost exactly the same way Phoebe oh, is in damn. the film. Yeah, and he, she's throwing petals onto onto a lake, uh, watching flowers float. Okay, and then she gives him a petal, and he throws it in, and finally there's a shot of him running out of petals and looking at the little girl and reaching forward into the camera and it was removed for a long time he, you never see it right but then they restored it and it's very disturbing yeah and Decker and, and Black clearly know about this yes and that scene is designed to make you think he's going to kill the girl and instead they she just she wins him over with her effervescent five-year-old personality yeah and I would say that that's amazing and that is an indication of the problems with this story. <laughs> Critical plot points rely on your knowledge of previous films yeah, that from, are not related to this film. Fifty-five years yeah. ago, <laughs> correctly. It is like it's the creature from the Black Lagoon was fairly recent by comparison. Right. Films were made in the fifties and sixties, but yeah, this is not a movie for kids. It's a movie for their parents who grew yeah. up on black and white TV. Right. Yeah. 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 Little nods there. Yeah, and I think the biggest problem facing the movie is that as soon as they didn't get Universal's interest and couldn't use the licensed monster designs because those were all copyrighted like hmm. the, the oh I can never remember the guy's name but the the Jack something the guy who designed the Boris Karloff makeup for Frankenstein right um, was a was a big deal they copyrighted it uh, in the 40s gotcha and so Hammer had to come up with something different when they were making the Christopher Lee movies and then here as well because they're not instantly recognizable on the poster I think that pushed people away a little bit I see and you just couldn't quite see Frankenstein's monster the bolts are in his temples instead of his neck and right. it's all a little wrong mm. and um, that seems to have worked against it at the time but also I think the fact that there's a kid that looks like Corey Haim who isn't Corey Haim or Corey Feldman. No, he looks like more like Corey Feldman in, in Lost Boys, which is a are, coincidence. Are you talking about Rudy? Yeah, because that was the same year as the Lost Boys. And right. They couldn't, they couldn't have known. Right. But he just looks just like him. And, and Lost think, Boys was so popular. Yeah, it was huge. And I think this was one of those things where it looked like a knockoff because it came out a month later. Right. Even though if you thought about it for two seconds, there's just no way. Yeah. But yeah. we were in a less enlightened age. That's right. I feel I still feel like it's we are less enlightened in that way, <laughs> but I can't think of examples to prove that. <laughs> well, I'm sure there's a few. Well, now it's just more blatant when the when the clone movies come out and there's like deep impact in Armageddon and you yeah, know, people you can see which projects were duplicates of of somebody else's or an echo of some script right. that went around ten years before. Ants and Bugs Life. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> same same, same um, window of time. Let's so I just want to address some of the things you got to gloss over in Monster Squad. Yes, I was going to say Rudy. Rudy is one thing. <laughs> Rudy, I love. Oh yeah, Rudy, Rudy. You just have to buy that the coolest, like pre, I guess teenager in town. He's like dead cool, like so sweet. Leather jacket, Ray Bans, smoking cigarettes, dirt bike. Yeah, dirt bike or BMX that he rides like a dirt bike. Boy with edge. A boy with edge still has no friends except for these like three ten year olds who want to hang out with him. Fine. Right. And one younger kid too, right? And Isn't one there like a yeah, five year old or so? Pete or something, or Pete's his dog. Pete's the dog. Eugene. Yeah. Eugene, that's right. Eugene, who again, my favorite part of the 
movie is Eugene writing the letter to the military guys <laughs> Dear in crayon. <laughs> Dear army guys. And then sealing it and mailing it, and then the army guys show up. When I was <laughs> when I was explaining the movie to someone, it's very hard, because I'm like, this movie fucking rules. It moves so fast. It's so sweet. Like, the stakes are real. And then I was like, oh, also, there's moments, like, the army shows up because a kid writes them a letter in crayon. And the friend I was telling this to was like, this, I don't want to see this. You're <laughs> describing trash. And I was like, no, no, I don't know why. There's just something where once you reach that moment, it's done well enough that you don't give it. You don't give a shit. Yeah, but you I mean, also have to believe that Dracula, <laughs> instead of just going and taking Van Helsing's diary, would call a kid's right. mom and leave a message that he wants to meet about purchasing the diary and leave his name as Dracula spelled on your card. Well, that, again, that's a that's a universal thing. That goes. That's a that's a callback in the okay, 40s. Okay. I think in Son of Dracula, he's masquerading as Doctor Alucard. Okay. Which is then Doctor Dracula. So it's Dr. Twice, which is just dumb. But yes. but yeah, I think one <laughs> of the things of the universal Dracula is that he really did think he was a couple of leagues smarter than everybody else. Yeah, he's he just, was just no not. one will know. <laughs> <laughs> but his plans are terrible, which again terrible I have to plans. respect. Yeah, his, like his whole idea. Yeah, the, he knows where the amulet. The amulet has somehow ended up in what I assume is California. They never say where it is. Like they never explain where the town is. Yeah, I don't. But think it was do. in Germany a hundred years ago, and now it's here. Yeah, in the basement of a building that I think they mentioned Van Helsing had followers or something or disciples. Okay, so they clearly brought it to the new world and hid it here. Yeah. Okay, again, fine. Um, yeah, I guess so. Winona Earp just did an entire season where the Garden of Eden was located somewhere in Alberta. I accept this. It's, sure. You know, it's all... Canada, it? baby! The Bible's all metaphor anyway. Yeah, it's a metaphor for Alberta. Yeah. <laughs> um, yeah, <laughs> but these things you have to accept. Yeah, and then you start to get into the interpersonal stuff, which, again... I'm assuming these are the Shane Black touches where the father-son relationship that oh the movie God. has no time for is still really good and oh, rich. It's wonderful. I mean, that's yeah, that's what zooms you through the cornier parts because, it, yeah, that stuff is so great and detailed. And every time I watch it, I notice something different that I can't... Like, I didn't realize, but in that moment, because, you know, the entire movie, the mom and the dad are fighting mm -hmm. and it's like, uh, he can't, like... Sean, the little kid, can't go see a movie with his friends because his dad needs him to babysit because he and his mom are going out tonight. What are they doing? They're going to a marriage counselor. Yeah, yeah. And uh, he's still smoking and Sean doesn't like that, blah, blah, blah. Um, but then he has to cancel on the marriage counselor because some guy's downtown is screaming that he's a werewolf, etc. But then in the scene where... Um, Dracula gets so pissed off that he just decides he's going to throw dynamite in the kid's clubhouse and that's going to solve the problem. So in that scene, uh, he throws that dynamite and he bombs the clubhouse and he says, meeting adjourned. And then as he's leaving, cop dad and his partner show up and like try to shoot at him and his partner gets dynamited and then the mom comes out and she like freaks out because she sees Dracula turn into a bat and fly away. And then the dad runs inside to find the kids. Yeah. And as he's running inside, he passes all of her suitcases. And she was about to leave. What the hell? Yeah. And then they're brought together by killing all the monsters and being reunited. Yeah. There is a really strange kind of sweet through line that that feels to me more than anything else, like at the Spielberg stuff. Yeah. Oh, totally. Like yeah. He is about a, a family that's been broken up. Poltergeist. Poltergeist is in the process of being torn apart by external forces. Mm -hmm. Uh but then here you have oh also you know, like these this couple is going through this fairly young parent these parents who are maybe in their late thirties I, I couldn't tell how old anybody is because the eighties are so strange that way yeah uh, but they're they had kids young I'm pretty sure uh -huh. and uh, they're they're having genuine relationship issues oh that they're God. working through badly oh yeah terribly. And, and they're allowed to keep their humanity while all this other insane stuff is running around and also monsters. Oh, man. That's <laughs> that scene in the bedroom when it's the mom tucking in her daughter, Phoebe. Oh, the candle thing? Yeah. yeah. The, keep the candle lit by your bed and that'll keep the monsters away. And then as she's leaving the room, she goes, are you going to yell at him? <laughs> and the mom goes, honey, I love your father. <laughs> the little girl's face just contorts and she says, what? I meant Sean for scaring me. Terrific moment. Yeah. Terrific moment about just the mom having these marital problems, thinking she could a bit talk to her, like, four-year-old daughter about it. Great. Yeah. No, it's... And again, it's the thing that's missing from Stranger Things, is, like, you get Winona Ryder freaking out over her missing child, 
but all the other stuff just feels like people acknowledging script beats because this is the sort of thing people expect from oh. these movies. They have to have baggage. But this movie, like the baggage is, it's literally there in the hallway at one point. But it also we see the baggage. But it's real. Yeah. Like it's it's. Oh my god! When the fucking cop in Stranger Things goes from being like alcoholic, depressive, shut in to busting into like CIA headquarters in right. the span of one episode just because now he thinks that's important. Like, what? Why'd you even introduce him with all this personal baggage if you're just going to discard it and turn him into, like, action hero? Yeah. It's, Where, what happened to the guy? What happened to the hungover mess? Yeah, it's weird. And David Harbour is so good at playing the mess that yeah, when it goes just, away, it feels like he's playing a different character. That's the problem with that show all over. As soon as as soon as soon the engine gets revving, they just discard all the, all the subtext and everything they set up. The setup just mm-hmm. goes out the window. And the setup's what... That's the fun shit. That's what you gotta honor. Yeah. That's the hook. Well, and here, I, I realized watching the Monster Squad again this time that if you did remake it, and I don't know how, like, I don't know how you'd repackage it for the present day, but you probably could. Like, as opposed to another season of Stranger Things, I would almost want to see this story told again. Mm. But there's a moment where the film sort of comes up to the perfect answer, which is the whole, to, to defuse the whole virgin issue, where a virgin must read the German words yeah. to send, to open the gateway to Limbo to send dracula and the monsters away forever of course and the teenage girl that they get to do it turns out to have done some stuff yeah uh and then they get steve but he doesn't count yeah they get a (laughs) five-year-old so now the line would be i don't know just hand stuff like some other way of of implying corruption that that is funny instead of corruption well that whole purity impurity (laughs) thing that runs through all these movies but it should be rudy who reads it yeah. Like, oh, yeah. Rudy, like, if that... He's got to admit that he's not as cool as he said yeah. he was. But, the, but Rudy's arc is he starts cool and just gets so much cooler. <laughs> and then it's done. Yeah. It's so gets good. Gets the girl at the end, walks off with his arm around her. All of it. All of it. Even though he blackmailed her into helping them by, like, threatening to post... Implying that he had nude photo. Well, not implying. Showing her a photograph that I think Frankenstein's monster took. Yeah. Uh, he took it with the camera by accident and then went bogus. Right. So bogus. The, this bogus photograph of a nude teenage girl. <laughs> yeah. Uh, that he's threatening to put up on the bulletin yeah. board to show everyone in town. Which is just, again, so 80s and <laughs> so gross. D- yeah, absolutely. First thing that goes out. First thing that you lose in the rewrite. But if, uh, but if, the second okay, thing. Yeah, there's after, a few After a variety of homophobic slurs. Yeah. Those go away. And let Fat Kid be called Horace. Like, that, even his friends call him Fat Kid, which just, yeah, again, that feels like too. that's bad. That feels like even in 1987, people should have known better. Yeah, I mean, he, he at least gets his redemptive moment. Sure. By killing the creature from the Black Lagoon. Yeah, with a fucking shotgun. (laughs) Turns out to be the easiest thing to kill. The fact that the cops (laughs) didn't try shooting at it before they just went at it with nightclubs is amazing. That is a... Billy clubs? Nightclubs. I think... Yeah, billy clubs, I think. That is a... I get it, because it's what you always want from monster movies is to see the monster just knock people aside like they're made of nothing. But you get that other one, which is, I think, the reason people love Duncan Regeer so much. The Dracula walkthrough where he just marches straight ahead oh, murdering yeah. people left and right yeah popping yeah. cops heads off yeah it's really distressing to watch that as an adult and it's oh, like right. oh no this is a kids movie and a dozen people just died i was trying to figure out when it was made in terms of like the geopolitical situation because into the reagan era yes so it would have been like essentially it really feels like a between wars movie in terms of how ineffectual like the police and the army are especially the army like the army's just a punchline that shows up at the end like it's definitely post vietnam and then it's like pre now like war is so everything again obviously like like there was like the first iraq war which i think sort of got that moving and then like obviously 9-11 and all that shit it's just like you would you just don't see the military represented that way in hollywood movies anymore i think there would be like a deep fear of showing disrespect um it really rings uh, like it really just reeks of that where you're just like wow there really was just this short pocket where you could where like people just didn't think of the army that much yeah i was trying to figure it out if it was a direct reference to like et or something like that where the kids have to operate in secret so everybody all the adults have to be there to be fooled Mm. And then I thought, no, they're just bad at their... Like, cops... The point of this movie is that the police just don't see it. And only the kids understand that monsters are real. Yeah, it's like you have to believe to... Ex- like, 
you have to you have to yeah open your like heart and mind to the possibilities yeah, that things yeah, yeah. outside of your scientific understanding I mean, it's literally the first line in the when you like once you get through the cold open and then you like smash into the school and they're like in the principal's office and he says that line where he goes uh uh sean whatever the other kid's name is uh i used to be a kid i used to think monsters were cool but uh now maybe I'm just a big kid because I think science is cool. Because <laughs> I dig it, man. Oh, yeah. And then he says, uh, the point is science is real. Monsters are not. And then they sort of close right. up on one kid saying, we don't know that, sir. Yeah. And that's just like, okay, mission statement. All right. It kids is, op- kids are open to the possibility. Adults yeah. are closed off. It is also a great line delivery. Because on the page, I can, like, we don't know that, sir. It could be sarcastic. It could be dumb. It mm-hmm. could be just a slow kid. Oh, yeah. But he does it with such kind of weird investment. Oh, yeah. So earnest. Yeah. Yeah. He's like, not only do we not know that, we're a bit afraid yeah. <laughs> about the possibility. We don't trust you to tell us that they're not real. Yeah. And then, of course, they're everywhere. And also, yeah, not only are they everywhere, but they have somehow conspired to have their crates shipped in... <laughs> the most uh, the most lackadaisical civilian airline uh, yeah. air, air freight company oh. but that's a great that again that's like that's the Shane Black stuff that I'm right. used to in all of his other scripts in Kiss Kiss Bang Bang in, in like, he wrote Iron Man 3 for God's sake like there's a, there's a looseness of mm. official performance that right. he does so beautifully and it's just that that thing of what the, the, the co-pilot's button in that scene is like, oh, I'll be out here making spooky sounds. Yeah, it's that's like, right. This is kind of what I want the whole movie to be. Yeah. I want to watch adults who aren't fully invested. But then, of course, it's Ghostbusters. Yeah. Which is the other thing that clearly inspired this movie. Right, yes. But you would never put the two of them together. It only just now occurred to me, talking about it now for the first time in 30 years, <laughs> that there's a continuum between the two. Oh, absolutely. Yeah, yeah. And I think what's important to Ghostbusters is that they are all sort of childish men. Yeah. Like, they haven't grown up in the traditional sense. They're sort of following a version of, like, being an artist instead of settling down and Mm -hmm. getting a real job, you know, except their version of, quote-unquote, being an artist is, like, trying to start their own ghost company. (laughs) And I think, now that I think about it, the original posters for Monster Squad probably did... Yes, of course it was, because the tagline, it's gone now, it's not on any of the new art, but right. the tagline used to be, you know who to call when you have ghosts, but who do you call when you have monsters? Right, I am yeah. an idiot. <laughs> it was right there. Yeah. But yeah. I, I just, it never, I guess I was just still too young to really put that stuff together in mm-hmm. terms of where things like come from. Right. But also the resulting product is so totally divorced from Ghostbusters, like it's not urban, it's not... Yeah, uh, it's not adult. I mean, although actually, Rudy and Peter Venkman kind of have a thing going with the harassing, uh, the casual harassment of women. Yeah, that's uh, the part that we like. That's the eighties. That's the part we like. <laughs> <laughs> but it's it is that sort of giant, like a giant story told through the perspective of some very small minded people, and the fact that mm-hmm. their kids actually works for this. Yeah, because yeah, of course they don't trust the police because they don't believe. They, they've seen all the movies where the poli- I mean that's yeah. the other thing there are horror movies in this world we see posters right for them but maybe not for Dracula and Frankenstein's monster which right. is kind of the one thing I was hoping there'd be more references to that this would be a world where there were Dracula movies because if he was real obviously there'd be stories about him and they would work their way into the culture yeah and these kids do know about it like they when they talk about him in their monster club like they're talking about like what are the ways two ways to kill a werewolf right, and right. like what are they like? Two ways to kill a Dracula. A Dracula. A Dracula. They never do tell us what the second way to kill a werewolf is. That's the that's joke. That's the payoff of the joke. There must be another way. <laughs> no, there isn't. That's what Rudy knows. He knows, and then he does it, and yeah. then he gets his great line. But that's like the funniest payoff too. Is like when they have that like insane rambling. Like, how do? You, what's the second way to? I don't know. Uh, accident with power tools. Uh, yeah. Push him out the window. Blow him up with dynamite or something. Yeah. Whatever they say. And they uh, do all of them. And they do all of that stuff, and then he reconfigures in that great scene. Yeah, which is the saddest thing about the werewolf mythology is that you can't die. That right. you can't kill yourself. It's always the Lon Chaney Jr. werewolf. Like it's again, it's a direct reference to the old eighties. The rather to the old Universal movies where he would just walk around begging to be killed. He couldn't do it himself. Oh, no, it was horrible. Uh, in one of the big team-up movies, like the things that directly inspired the Monster Squad, mm-hmm. horror, uh, House of Dracula, House of Frankenstein, where all the Universal monsters got together in a movie for the same... Inevitably, it would start 
on a night that didn't have a full or a day that didn't have a full moon. And uh, what was his name? Lawrence Talbot. The, the Lon Chaney character would just show up and be miserable. He was so sad <laughs> that he knew but at this point, like he, uh, they kind of got around it with American World in London by having him have no memory of like David Naughton would wake up and feel great right. having just murdered a bunch of people. Oh, right. But right, the right. werewolf thing, you know, you're divorced from your actions. You don't know. Mm-hmm. But by the time these sequels came around, Lawrence Talbot was so just like he was begging to be killed. He wanted to, he wanted this torment to end. He should have made himself a silver bullet. Well, but that's the other thing. Like, apparently you're just not allowed to kill yourself. It's some weird suicide prevention thing built into the curse. Yeah. Somehow. The curse. It's, it was tragic. And then John Grease shows up, uh, you know, I'm a werewolf, lock me up. Yeah. And then we realize. Great scene. Yeah. They blow him up and he comes back together because that's werewolves and that's really disturbing. Yeah. You can't. Totally. Oh, yeah. He's a very tragic character. He's also like the moral con, like he's the conscience of the monster side. Yeah. He, he's the one who like goes out of his way at great personal risk to warn the cop dad that his son's in danger. Yeah. How he knows about that is left <laughs> to your imagination. I assume he remembers the werewolf stuff. I just, you know, he's vaguely aware of the things he's seen. And like Dracula saying, presumably off camera at some point, all right, these kids have the book. Yeah. <laughs> so if we don't get it, we're going to kill them. I assume he overheard him making the phone call to the parents about buying the book. <laughs> about buying the book. Put two and two together. <laughs> the book that was on a garage. Just go get the fucking <laughs> book, man. Go get the book. I like that about Dracula as well, is that he weirdly ceremonial. Oh, yeah. He won't take the amulet. He has to have someone give it to him. That's true. Three times he says, give me the amulet. Give me the amulet, you, know, you bitch. Yeah, which is just unnecessary. Very unnecessary. But, but yeah, he's yeah. right there. He could simply just take it. It's next to him. All of those things are like, yeah, you can excuse them by calling him ceremonial like I, I like that there's ways you could sort of talk yourself into it when oh, i watch monster it, rules in monster rules yeah when i watch it i'm just like all right uh, it doesn't fully make sense but that's fine because yeah. i don't want you to win i want <laughs> i want the kids to win so uh whatever needs to happen to slow down the villain's progress or whatever fine 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 because there's just so much fun ha- being had like before and after all those moments that i'm like sure sure yeah this is like where the plot needs to unnecessarily slow down like Dracula who had so much it was so easy for him to just put a little hammer through a wall to reveal the amulet so clearly he could have just done with 10 more hammer hits <laughs> and then he's got the amulet and he's through but instead it takes him a full day of rigging up dynamite right. to take down the rest of this wall fine sure I don't know well he has to do it so the house doesn't fall in obviously I mean Dracula is clearly he spent enough time to pick up engineering tips that he knows right. it's a supporting so you gotta wall. use the precision tool of dynamite shaped <laughs> charges we've all seen better call Saul okay but okay uh, well, there, there is also, like, the room is filled with crosses. So I assume he's blowing it up so the crosses get covered up by the rubble. Listen, and I love inside. the work you're doing the right now on this movie's behalf. I, I am never going to be caught out by monsters. <laughs> I grew up right. Uh, which is why it's so frustrating that I don't know the second way to kill a werewolf. Even though you claim the joke is there isn't one. There is none. There must be another way. Don't what do they do before bullets? Only one way to kill a werewolf. <sighs> Rudy, just so full of breath. <laughs> Told you. Only one way to kill a werewolf. It's great. It is. It's it's a big laugh line. It is. And then the, the fucking tragic last moment from the werewolf guy when he's returned, become the man again with the billowing white shirt with the bullet hole through his chest. He goes, "Thank you." See, that's what they want. Oh, oh, it's great. They just want to go. I think Lawrence Talbot said it two or three times in the course because he would always die at the end of the werewolf movies, but or the Wolfman movies. But then they just bring him back. Bring him back. Return from the grave. He always return from the grave. You can't not. I mean, it's a yeah. property. There's going to be more. Yeah, you're signed, be it's more. like now with the Marvel movies, you're signed for five or seven or whatever it is. You just I assume with the Universal, like the Dark Universe thing, which I hoped was leading towards a Monster Squad-like rebirth. Because they tried to, the thing with the Tom Cruise Mummy movie. Oh, right. They were going to reinvent all the Universal monsters. And you just shouldn't. Like, there's no point. They're, right. They're, I think that's the other reason about the Monster Squad working so well. It's a time capsule of the 80s in a weird way that yeah. preserves the monsters back when they were still potentially scary. Mm-hmm. Now, I, how do you get away with an Invisible Man movie in the present day that isn't Hollow Man, that isn't something that's really disturbing and, and right. ugly? I don't, know how, I don't know how you could make a Frankenstein movie nowadays that mm-hmm. wouldn't just be so dull. I just have no idea how you could pull that off. Penny Dreadful kind of did it by incorporating the creature. 
Yeah, I but was I, that show any good? No. I started watching it and I was like, "Hey, this could oh no!" And I think by the end of the first episode, I was out. Yeah, the show. Yeah, no, the show was a mess, and I t- I gave up after about halfway through the second season. Wow, but that's that's I, a hell of a commitment for something that's a mess. Again, the idea was really interesting. I love yeah. I love the the idea of the ensemble of literary figures yeah you know, the league of extraordinary gentlemen all that stuff the, that movie was terrible but the, the idea is kind of cool if you start figuring out well yeah they were all around around the same time that's when this wave happened in literature mm-hmm. what would happen and it turns yeah. out nothing terribly interesting yeah but these movies have more ambition like the monster squad is they all have a purpose they're all working together mm-hmm. some of them unwillingly but there is yeah. a reason for all of this to be happening and this is the reason and once every hundred years, da, 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 yeah. this is the story we're telling. Yeah. And because it's a movie instead of an unlimited series, it can be beginning, middle, and end. It can totally. be entertaining and not overstay its well. It's 82 minutes long. It's, is that it? Yeah. Wow. They're, they're it really feels as, like it. Just zoomed oh, by. Yeah. No, and a perfect montage. It's like perfect 80s sugar. montage. Yes. It's the, untopped. Except maybe by like, what, like Footloose? <laughs> what else competes? Yeah, the preparation thing yeah. where they're all getting ready. Yeah. So the, the Blu-ray has a deleted scene, which I think very smartly taken out, uh, where Shane goes into his dad's bedroom, gets his gun and replaces the bullets with what looked like, I don't know, garlic or something? Because they didn't have six more silver bullets. But there's there's <laughs> the gun is just hanging on the bedpost in its holster. And from a present day perspective, it is the most disturbing image. Right. Because it's played with bouncy music and it would have been part of this montage. And it's like, there's a five year old in this house. Yeah. And this gun is just there. <laughs> it's very unpleasant. Uh, I like the montage as it is now, which is like Rudy doing literally everything <laughs> and everyone else being more or less useless. That's right. like, He's making steaks on a lathe. He like he steals the crossbows, he makes the steaks. He like he boils down. Bullets, yeah. <laughs> he makes silver bullets. He, like boils down silver in shop class, and then molds it into bullets. It's he just does a heroic amount of work in an afternoon. Yeah, and then the great. other kids are like making business cards, like <laughs> writing letters to the army. Just like not the business cards is the best view. You're like this, the monsters are coming tonight. <laughs> you don't need business cards. Let's go. But it's great. Rudy just does it. He just takes care of everything. He was a good shop student. I hope he got a decent grade. Oh my Although God. he doesn't work on the thing he's supposed to be working on. That's right. right. And that's what's going to hurt him right there. Yeah. <laughs> you got to you gotta do your, you know, got to do your actual assignment, too. There is, I mean, there's such a... Now I just want to know what job Rudy ended up with after this. Oh, my God. Because he failed shop and didn't get his doctorate or whatever. It wasn't like his, his diverging timeline where he's just ended up working as a mechanic or something. He had a good heart. I mean, he had a conscience and a good heart. Whatever he did, he was going to do it honorably. Yeah. I feel. He probably just didn't like parents. Insurance salesman. Yeah. Car yeah. salesman. Honor- like one of those honorable insurance or car salesmen. It would say right on his business card, one of the good ones. Yeah, that's right. And you'd have to believe him. Yeah. Yeah, Rudy would really have like the uh, Nicolas Cage and uh, <laughs> Peggy, Peggy Sue, Sue got married it. trajectory. Oh, <laughs> yeah. Yeah. But they always want to make these movies feel like they're tied up in little packages you know like so the ending comes when the whole town is celebrating and the, and the camera dollies up and yeah, out and, and then you hear a rap song uh, oh going god over the plot that was the not a good watched. rap song i like it a lot that is the whitest <laughs> rap song but the, the monster squad and it has it has the um it has that musical stink dun, 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 that old timey mm. musical stink mm-hmm. that's like weirdly enough that's sort of the spirit of the whole film it's trying to merge the new and the old and yeah and, coming up with something in different entirely like it is yeah. a mutant thing but it feels to me it just feels like the 80s yeah. like it in in such a good way such a <laughs> nice way <laughs> you know mostly yeah i mean other than the, the occasional sexism and and homophobia yeah. you get some of the baggage for sure yeah i was um, kind yeah. of amazed going over all of these sort of genre splicing things that happened at the time, the only one that really doesn't have anything is Back to the Future because the sexism mm. is built right in with the whole Oedipal stuff. Right, right. Because it can't have a romantic subplot. Right. And Biff's a rapist and that again, he's the villain, it's okay. Like that 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 stuff is baked into the concept to be morally on the right side of history mm. in a way that all the other movies just weren't. I feel like uh, Spielberg was more 
aware of that stuff too. Appeared to be, you know. Yeah. Like, well, the Goonies has the scene. That's right. The Goonies has a scene where Josh Brolin looks up somebody's skirt for the rearview mirror. But ah, I forgot about. Yeah, that. no. Everybody <laughs> conveniently forgets about that scene. It's pretty early on. But it's like it's a character point that establishes that he's horny. Yeah, he horny guy. Yeah. I mean, the '80s were a horny time. Yes. It's a, it's, <laughs> it's hard to explain it to people now, who who just didn't grow up with it. Like the, yeah. the Reagan era was like just it was sexist and kinda racist. Not as much as it is these days, but politically like America was going full capitalist and, and if you could have some like if you could get something, you could have it. So the entitlement thing is there and Yeah. Uh, it's like open season on stereotypes and yeah. the Monster Squad doesn't do too much of that, I think, because no, the it kids doesn't are really. innocent. They are innocent. But they do, like, it does have that 80s quality of, like, the 80s obsession with the 50s, mm. which is, like, again, Reagan-ish. Sure. Like, the small town that they're in has a very, like, 50s suburbia feel yeah. to it. Um, yeah, it might not be 87 in there. It might be, like, 62. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, the 80s touches come more from just, like the t-shirts they're wearing but yeah you see like the drive-in movie that he watches from his roof yeah. with, like the radio tune to it it feels old-fashioned for the time mm-hmm. but then the pace of it the like certainly the pace of the dialogue and then like the music and all that stuff there's like a fun like this is what movies can do now yeah quality to it and the level of effects the sophistication i think they, yeah like the the stan winston shop is taking great pleasure in doing these monsters yeah the way they couldn't have done them in the 30s and 40s right totally yeah With just like animatronics and the, I, the again, werewolf transformation scenes are amazing it's pretty good and it's done in a way that it was done in the like back in the day where you get flashes of the progression rather than sitting and watching the whole thing there's like yeah. there's one moment that sort of quotes the more modern werewolf stuff with a snout pushing out of a face mm. but otherwise the, the scene in the phone booth with the lights changing and flickering and the, mm-hmm. and the, the pieces of the phone booth obscuring or transformation yeah. that's like straight out of the old 30s movies where totally. you could just do it in stages and I mean the Gilman is he's the least <laughs> interesting of all the characters he's, yeah, he's no facial shittiest. expression really and he doesn't get to do much but they shoot him well like when he emerges from like the swamp that's yes. behind their house <laughs> yeah is it a bayou is there a reference to a bayou somewhere I don't know I could never know. figure out where this is taking place I love like I didn't mind it because I was like it first of all, it looks so beautiful mm-hmm. to shoot like a swamp that yeah, it's just like lush it's and so many a great lagoon, colors, which makes sense. It's a lagoon, yeah. Um, but then yeah, when he emerges from that holding uh, Dracula's or uh, Frankenstein's coffin, great, great shot. Yeah, it Perfect. is. It's like it's it's obviously this is the stuff that that Decker and, and Black have been dreaming of their mm-hmm. whole childhoods. Like they're they're the movie nuts who get to play with the toys again. You know, like, just to bring back the Predator. That's what they did with that movie. Mm. They made a Predator sequel that feels... The 80s feeling of it is amazing. Mm. Uh, but it's also self-aware. And it feels like you're watching all the sequels that would have been made in a universe where the Predator films never stopped. Right. So you've got characters recurring and, and connections and things. Like Gary Busey's kid shows up as Gary Busey's kid, basically, from okay. Predator 2. Right. And there's a... A weird sense that the world has been developing all along and you also get the sense that these guys have been thinking about like Shane Black was in the first Predator and he's been thinking oh. about what he would have done ever since right. with the property and now you get to see oh they would do this oh and yeah there'd be this facility and you know what why wouldn't the Predator do that now they can do that now yeah. and yeah it's like the climax of seven movies um, I, I saw it the first day I think of TIFF or the second like it was the Friday morning, maybe? It was uh-huh. right after the Midnight Madness premiere. And it was a 9 a.m. screening, and it was in the IMAX Jesus. room. And it was just like... Was anyone else there? Oh, it was, was packed. packed? Yeah. 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 And 20 minutes in, it was like, this is the best movie I've ever seen. <laughs> and after another hour, it's still pretty good. And the okay. ending uh, whiffs so a bit. Good. But they find a way to to make it feel like it never left. That's good. I'm wary. Yeah. I'm wary of all of these nostalgia projects now. They never quite... They never quite hit it for me, but certainly I'll give it a chance. Yeah. Of course. Well, what just... do I have to do? What do I got something better to do with my time? I'll give it a chance. Yeah. And nobody's standing on ceremony. You can you can watch Predator. No one has to know. 
Oh, but everyone will have to know because if I don't like it, I'll have to say something about it publicly on a you know, goddamn tweet or something, and then get a bunch of angry responses, and then regret anything. Nah, I think. I mean, honestly, if you if you have love in your heart for the Monster Squad, I think you'll be fine with the Predator. Yes, I'm ready. I'm this, ready. This I do scene. love the first. Yeah, and I love moments of the second. And those are the only two I've seen. Um. Yeah, I mean, I I don't I don't respect or or consider the Alien versus movies <laughs> garbage, uh, but I, I I can I there's things in the third one in Predators that's actually that are actually pretty clever. Yeah, it's yeah it's not bad. It's got an amazing cast, uh, like Walton Goggins is in it, and okay. um, Lawrence Fishburne shows up, and just Topher Grace is well used, which is something you I can't like say Topher about Grace. every movie. Yeah, but you'll you'll see what I mean. <laughs> okay. uh, but it's yeah it's. Again, it's like the premise has always had more potential than people seem to know what to do with. Yeah, I mean, it's just a fucking cool-looking thing. Like, yeah. how can, there's always potential when you got a cool-looking thing. Yeah, and the first movie is like it's perfect. I, I was stunned watching it the last time, realizing there's like there's no exposition, there's no dialogue that right. tells you what's going on. There's theories, and there are people who somebody else pointed this out on Twitter a little while ago. The first Predator is amazing because it is a movie about people who do their jobs and do their jobs perfectly, and it doesn't save them. Mm. Like they're the best at what they do and they <laughs> yeah. know what to do and as soon as they figure out what's going on they act accordingly right. and they're all still wiped out right yeah that's interesting yeah I do love I do love movies where it's just like the amount of time and the location are just so confined mm. it's just like find out about the thing try to deal with the thing succeed or fail at dealing with the thing yeah. and it all happens like wherever it happens you know yeah the um well monster squad takes place over what four days monster squad's pretty tight yeah Yeah, it's like the second half of the movie is one day yeah it's pretty good like they realize like it's tomorrow's day 100 (laughs) years ago and they're like if we're gonna deal with this we gotta do it now and then it's just bam you're into now we're now we're now we're cooking yeah how fast does the postal service work to get that letter to the army (laughs) yeah Especially when it does not appear that this kid has any knowledge of how to mail things. <laughs> <laughs> he doesn't have a stamp. Yeah. He may have simply just put it on the back of a bird or something. Yeah. It's true. That's It was a better time for the Postal Service. That's, <laughs> that's the big takeaway from that movie. Yeah. Give me one fun fact about the movie from the Blu-ray that I don't know about. Oh, Blow um, my mind for one moment. I'm trying to think if there's anything we haven't touched on yet. The... They don't get too deep into the Holocaust survivor aspect. <laughs> that part is crazy. Yeah. That's so crazy. I don't know why that's there. <laughs> why is that there? I don't know either. I think it's supposed to be a way to, to like, show that there's real evil and these are just cartoons that we're dealing with. But at the same time, why, why would you, would you even yeah, do that? Don't know? remind us of that. Like We know that. Yeah. But for this, this movie that's such a romp, it's yeah. just like a little... I mean... It's so ham-fisted that it plays as funny, which I think has got to be the opposite of the intention. Yeah, no, it couldn't have been, because like, that lingering shot of the tattoo as he closes the door, like that's supposed to be a moment where we should think things through. But yeah. they've also they've shown the menorah in the background in his house, and it's like... Well, oh, I didn't things. even notice that. Yeah, it's on, his, it's on a table near the window. It's framed. I think the first time they go inside, it's framed in the shot in a way that you can't miss it if you know what it is. I see. And they should have just left it at that, because... I think, I mean, I wonder if there was any feeling among them that, like, a German figure in a non-German, like, an American small town, you would instantly think Nazi. Mm. So I wonder if going, like, Jewish Holocaust survivor was their way of being like, nope, not a Nazi. (laughs) Just to be clear, not a Nazi. Like, one of the good guys. Here we go. Right. I don't know. Yeah, it's, it's a it's an insane moment. Yeah, it's I have to prepare people for it when I watch it with new people. Yeah, it's always weird when that happens in in movies that are like, even the Avengers has a moment where like, Loki's taking over Berlin, I think, and some the, the elderly Jewish man refuses to to kneel for it before him and says, "There are always people like you who try to dominate people like me," and you just think, mm, "Okay, we've established Captain America, but 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 but." Yeah, this is the thing that never sits right. Like if you, there was like I think what was it the the comic books the Human Torch killed Hitler way back in the Marvel comics in the sixties. They okay. they wrote a scene where the original Human Torch, who was an android who wasn't who predates the Fantastic Four stuff, kills Hitler yeah. in front of Captain America. Yeah, and Hitler says to his lieutenant as he burns to death, "Tell them it was suicide," 
And you're thinking... Oh, my God. Yeah. And you're thinking, no, this is just like, don't do this at all. You're bending over backwards to make sense of a fantastical world where this real evil happened. Yeah. And unless you're going to go like all the way with Man in the High Castle and, and have an alternate universe where the Nazis won the war. Yeah. You just shouldn't invoke that stuff. Like, I still, I'm still really mad at Tarantino for Inglorious Bastards. Oh, God. And just deciding that you know, like some Jews shot Hitler. Well, they didn't, though. Man, right? I don't know. I don't know about that movie. I don't know about Django Unchained. I don't know yeah. about this whole like historical revisionism that Tarantino does in his like cartoony style. It just feels rotten to me. I yeah. mean, obviously, there's always going to be fun scenes and like fun bits of dialogue and like interestingly portrayed characters because he can bring that out in people. But like, there's also some bullshit, yeah. and it just feels like it's. It's a it like does a disservice to real things. Yeah, well, like he's not the guy for those stories. Yeah, I, I simultaneously I can understand why he'd want to make a movie about the Manson murders and why he shouldn't. Right. Yeah, because he's he's just gonna make it a romp. Yeah. It's like ugh, I don't know. Do we need that again? I do not think we do. I don't think we ever do. I mean, it just. Again, it's it's a way for, of him. Uh, this is so far off topic, but it's like it's a way of uh, for him to not engage with the present, which is his whole thing. Like the last movie he made that was set in a recognizable present day was Jackie Brown. Oh, and that's the best one. Yeah, I mean the Kill Bill films are ostensibly set in the present, but they're right. fantasies. Yeah, um, he just doesn't want to be now. Like he doesn't want to confront the real world. I don't think. I mean, I don't think he ever has. But Jackie Brown was. Was that actually set in the present? Yeah, it's a No More Leonard adaptation. Of course it was, because, yeah, that's why it has, like... That's why it feels so good. Because, like... <laughs> and at the time, why it felt so uncomfortable, because some of the style is so ugly. Mm-hmm. I mean, that movie's an ugly movie. <laughs> yeah. In a in a great way, like... Yeah, he was You've never seen like Robert De Niro look worse. You've never seen, like... those. A lot of those actors look, like, more frumpy and yeah. less charismatic... But then that was kind of the whole thing. It felt like a total like mirror image or like a shadow image of like a Pulp Fiction, which yeah. made everyone look way cooler than they were. Yeah, it's an underbelly movie. Yeah, you're it's just, an underbelly. You're sort of soaking in in the just the general un- unpleasantness of all of it. Yeah, um, it's yeah. so it's good. I like that one a lot. <laughs> Every time I think that I really maybe just don't like Tarantino, I remember that movie. And I'm like, nah, I really like. Yeah, Reservoir Dogs is perfect. Like, Pulp Fiction's pretty good. But yeah, I have. It's been a while since I gotta. I gotta go back. I'm. I'm too like. Now it's just the new ones are. And actually, yeah. I didn't. I don't know. Yeah. Mixed feelings. Mixed feelings. Because yeah. I didn't mind the one where it's all the cabin and. Oh, the, the hateful eight. Yeah. Yeah. There's a good two hour movie in there. Anyway, we're way off topic, and I—I I, think we're on topic. <laughs> <laughs> I just—I like to. I mean, sure, a Tarantino monster movie would be cool. You kind of did that with From Dust Till Dawn. Yes, I agree. A Tarantino monster movie would be. I mean, I th- yes, that's really what it is. Is like Tarantino is an, an escapist filmmaker, and instead of trying to bring his escapism to uh, historical some real life historical tragedies, maybe he should bring it to escapist uh, subjects. That would be. Even though I think that The Hateful Eight had some interesting things to say. <laughs> oh, I like, the, no, I like The Hateful Eight a lot. But, I mean, ultimately it is, like, it's the thing, right? Like, it's the thing in Reservoir Dogs. That's right. But, uh, so, so yeah, so the uh, we've sort of gone full circle around the entire film, so now I get to ask the question I've been waiting to ask. Is there anything from The Monster Squad that you yourself have used in your work? Have you incorporated or borrowed or oh, stolen yeah. in reference? Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean... I mean, I don't know if specific moments or anything... Well, actually, yeah, there's a moment in Cavendish, this show that we just... Andy Bush and I just uh, are almost done making for CBC. Comes out January 10th! Oh. But there's a moment where in the pilot episode, this town believes that there's a beast, a sort of semi-supernatural hints of a werewolf beast that is like, just once a year, you just gotta lock up on Beast Day and... (laughs) Just be aware. You can put your offering out, and then uh, whether it's real or not, no one's 100% sure, but it's a nice excuse for family to get together and stay inside for the night anyway, right? So sort of like thrown away that way. But then something happens, and everyone's convinced it's the beast. So there's this town hall meeting, and everyone's shouting out what they want to do. And then at one point, we've got an old man who stands up and goes, I'm the beast! Lock me up! Kill me! And then the mayor says, you're not the beast, Taurus, sit down. And he kind of goes, oh. he sits down. But anyway, yeah, that's... That's the werewolf scene from Monster Squad where he goes, lock me up! Which I've had in my heart and soul for uh, 20 years. But mostly what I took from Monster Squad, and I've just used in everything, I probably just took, it's more appropriate just to say I took it from Shane Black, but uh, uh, it's just overlapping quick dialogue. 
Yeah. Like overlapping dialogue that is so fast that you can't try to make it so fast that you can barely he- register a punchline before you're sort of past it, mm-hmm. which now is like, it's like a signature of Armando Iannucci too. But like my first exposure to it was in those Shane Black movies. Like that was always my biggest, you, you definitely hear it in Spielberg movies from that period too, like Jaws or E.T. or Poltergeist. Like there's like a nice natural flow, but Shane Black really like ramped it up. So, like, some of the dialogue sequences in Monster Squad, like, when the two bullies are coming at Fat Kid outside school, and they're doing this whole, like, mock news live on the street report about him blocking traffic, and it just goes so fast that you can't hear every word, but it's it's just such a joy in the energy of it. So, 100%, just, like, everything I've ever made, I just grabbed that element and used it, um... So yeah, we just call it overlapping dialogue, but that's the spirit of it. We're just like, we want dialogue that's, we don't want it to be like set up, punchline, wait, set up, yeah. punchline, wait for like this imagined reaction. We want it to just be like flowing, literally talking, people talking over each other. You miss a few words. That's fine. The energy will like propel you through it. Yeah. Which is weird. Cause I'm just thinking like room for rent is so the opposite of that. Like it's, there's so much stillness between you and Gilman because your characters are trying to figure each other out in every single moment Mm. that it's like as you're saying this it's like no I get this from almost everything else I've seen but this other exception is coming up where the thing I didn't write (laughs) there it is that must be it yeah it's also that's that's Brett Gelman's vibe is like he uh, does that he's very deliberate Mm -hmm. and um, yeah and takes those pauses and enjoys like the sort of tension the very like uncomfortable tension between characters uh, yeah, and it's not my vibe at all. Like, uh, yeah. I'll you know gladly participate in it, and it was like interesting and fun to like see how that felt yeah, to do it, it that way. But it's really fascinating to watch that come out of you in the movie because it's not what I was what I expect from you. Yeah, you can see a couple scenes where I'm like sort of digging in a bit more to like what I'm used to. Like, my favorite scene to shoot in that movie was the one in the car with the cop car with Patrick J. Adams. Yeah. Um, who was just like so fucking funny it really <laughs> caught me off guard it's not, not like I've seen a ton of stuff with him and like I've never really watched Suits but I have not seen him do comedy like that before that was it it's like I was told like he doesn't do a ton of comedy but like um, he's a great actor and I think he's, you're gonna really like performing with him and he was just so funny just like so in it the entire time riffing being so quick and uh, and, and and like did it more the way that I'm used to doing. So like we filmed way more than we needed to in that cop car scene, just cause it was just fun to, the different ways that he would like accidentally threaten me with his gun. And then we would riff on that and we riff on like his like rap career that I think is like a subplot that had to get cut from the movie for time. But like, he's like a cop with like a burgeoning like side career in rap. Everybody has dreams. That's right. Anyway. Um, but yeah, you're, you're right to point that out. I, and I think like, yeah, I, I definitely like, <laughs> struggled uh at times with that movie because um because it was like a different tone than uh i would naturally like throw myself into but what is this uh career for if not to try different things yeah no expand what you do my thanks to mark little who you can watch facing off against brett gelman in room for rent on itunes and elsewhere or battling monsters in gary and his demons on cbc digital in canada and verve in the u.s and keep an eye out for cavendish on cbc january 10th it does sound kind of great Thanks also to Angie Power. She knows what she did. You can find Mark on Twitter at MarkMarkLittle, all one word, and you can find The Monster Squad in a very good DVD and Blu-ray special edition from Lionsgate Home Entertainment. It's also available on iTunes and Google Play. As always, you can find me on Twitter at Norm Wilner and elsewhere on the internet at NowToronto.com. You can also find this podcast on Twitter at Semcast, S-E-M-Cast, and on the web at SomeoneElsesMovie.com. If you feel like leaving a review on iTunes or Apple Podcasts or wherever you enjoy the show, that would be greatly appreciated. Every little bit helps. It truly does. Thanks for your support, and thanks for listening. I'm afraid you're just too darn loud.